Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Fright Rags. Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Collections include John Carpenter's Halloween, Universal Monsters, Night of the Living Dead, Creepshow, Twin Peaks, Evil Dead, Ghostbusters, and so many more. All officially licensed and only available at www.fright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off their first order using Colors of Dark 10. Again, that's Colors of Dark 10 for 10% off your first order at www.fright-rags.com. Visit severin-films.com for the latest cheerfully perverse releases from Severin Films. Available now, Luigi Cozy's The Black Cat, a.k.a. Demon 6, the unofficial third mother installment from longtime Dario Argento collaborator and the director of Contamination. Uh, Cozy's 1989 loose spin on the classic Potale stars Carolyn Monroe and dollops of uniquely Italian splatter. Never before on home video in America with the new 2K scan and interviews with Cozy and Monroe. Uh, speaking of unofficial sequels, absolutely no one involved with the original would approve of the super gore and sleaze quotient of Patrick Still Lives from the producers of Burial Ground. Oh boy. This one has to be seen to be believed and arguably features the most outrageous death scene in all of Italian horror cinema. That is a bold horror statement. And we know that's very bold. Okay, well, I, I rewrote their entire script because I was so blown away by that statement. We dare you to see Patrick Still Lives now with 2K scan from the original negative. A sexy slipcase edition available only from our web store. Also out this month, Hélène Delon and Shock Treatment, the first official disc release of the notorious 70s French chiller. New 2K scan from the Interpositive in Paris, packed with special features and exclusive to the Severance store, slipcase and soundtrack CD edition. Follow Severin Films on social media. Their Black Friday exclusive announcements will be dropping very soon. And visit severin-films.com for all available Blu-rays and DVDs and merch. And last but certainly not least, tonight's episode is brought to you by Final Girl Wines. Final Girl Wines is a boutique mom-and-pop wine label any horror lover can be proud to share. Whether it's a quiet movie night on your couch or a Halloween gift for a friend, there's a Final Girl wine for every palate and every occasion. Their wines have scored 90 points and above in Wine Enthusiast magazine at prices that won't break the bank. Join the four-bottle wine club by Halloween and get four bottles for just $88. Member benefits include 10% off of all future purchases, and you can cancel at any time. Go to finalgirlwines.com to get your wine today. Welcome to Colors of the Dark podcast. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. We are back for episode two. Episode two! Our Halloween... It's cool to be able to count episodes again. I (laughs) I can keep track of how many episodes I've done. When they're this slow, I can. Once they get up in the 50s, then I'm like, I don't know, where are we, like 79 or something like that? So, yeah. But it's nice, nice to mind. It's, it was fun. We, we had to go all out for a Halloween episode or at least do something mm-hmm. different for a Halloween episode, having a podcast on Halloween for many years. Uh, after a while, you start to reach what, what possible topics can we do? So we got some fun stuff planned yeah. uh, this time around. But it is diff- it's definitely a different year. I mean, it's, I, I feel it. I, the fact that we're only a couple of days away from Halloween um, 
and I don't feel the same. It doesn't feel quite in the air. It's getting, so that's the weird thing is like my house is decorated. Mm -hmm. It's getting cool outside. I just ate a slice of pumpkin cheesecake. Um, Like it feels like everything is there, but there are so many things that we have not done that are usually kind of like our precursors to Halloween, like universal horror nights. Elric and I usually do a bunch of haunted houses in the area. A couple film festivals. Yeah, all the film festivals. We usually travel a good bit during this month as well. And um, yeah, and then of course, like, are you taking your kids out? I know Santa Clarita lifted their laws. Yeah, they lifted it somewhat. I don't know yet. Honestly, that's the other thing. I've I've just thought so little about it this year. I mean, I've thought a lot about horror movies. I feel like I've spent maybe watched more than any October. Yep, me but too. in the same token, it it's just you know without some. I haven't been doing it in theaters. The all nighters have been things that you plan at home, not in person. So you know, it's a lot of an adjustment. But I think uh, we will win the spirit of the day. And it'll still be a great Halloween, you know. I hope so. I need it at this point. I'm still going to let the kids get dressed up and go walk around the block or something. Like not stopping at people's houses. We'll put masks on. Um, But that was their big thing was we can't go out in our costumes. And and Dark Delicacies is doing this awesome like drive up trick-or-treating thing where you drive up and then you text them and they come out and bring prizes to the kids and stuff like that. So I think we're doing that as well. So it's something to keep the spirit alive. In the meantime, I have, you're right. I have watched so much stuff. There's been so much stuff releasing this holiday. Um, And I think a lot of it was people kept holding their movies thinking that, you know, theaters might open back up. Let's just wait. We can do some type of big, like limited theatrical release. And I think that finally, a couple of weeks ago, people were suddenly like, no, we're not going to get to do that. Let's just fucking get it out on Halloween. Um, and so we have seen a lot coming really quickly. A lot of it I didn't even know about. Like I saw an ad for Come Play, um, which is coming out today. Um, and again, I think I mentioned it last week. I had no idea Antebellum came out. Like there's been so much stuff just releasing that I haven't even caught up. This is the year of like big things being dropped and you have no clue it even came out. Mm -hmm. Like compared to other years where we usually would be pretty on top of it and kind of trying to make sure we see all the new stuff in a theater or opening day. It's just, it's just a totally different thing, but you know, it will level and we'll figure it out. I believe movie theaters will come back with a roar at some point when it's safe, but, uh, I'm an optimistic fellow. So you uh, are, (laughs) but we have been watching a ton. So let's dig in on everything. Um, so the first one that we're going to talk about, I am really glad that this one did not take five years. Um, cause usually I will say, Elric, this thing is awesome. You need to see this. And he will say, cool. And then like years will go by and then I'll say, Hey, didn't you like that thing? And he'll say, I haven't seen that. And I will say, wait, I told you to watch that. And, and clearly she's talking about Hubie Halloween. No, I'm not talking about, I didn't. Yeah, watch. I, I heard know. mixed reviews. I know you watched Hubie. Yes. Yes. They're mixed things. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, but I texted him, it was, when was it, like last Sunday? And I was like, you have to go watch Third Day. It is like everything that I love in the world. It's folk horror. It's got aquatic tones to it. There's weird bugs in it. It's got Jude Law, really good acting. You have to go watch it. And it only took three days before you caught up. Um, I wasn't going to, and I I remember texting you saying, you know, I can't watch TV because think about all the poor orphan movies I don't get to watch. And then I watched one episode, and then I finished the series before you did. Yes, (laughs) which I knew would happen. Um, But the third day, this is an example of shit coming out that I just don't even know. I had no idea this even existed until one of our listeners 
um, messaged me on Twitter and was like, are you watching the third day? Because everyone needs to be watching this and it's so good and it feels like something you would love. And so I checked out the first episode and they were right. I loved this show. Um, Six part miniseries on HBO. Yeah. And I mean, I hadn't even heard of it and it's a big HBO series, which is very unusual. I hadn't even seen a trailer. Uh, Jude Law is exceptional. Jude Law is one of those actors who has always been a big actor and I tend to not gravitate towards him. Maybe it's, I mean, I love him in Talented Miss Ripley and, um, and he's fantastic in, um, I Heart Huckabees especially, but he's just one of those actors who I don't, I wouldn't go to a Jude Law film because Jude Law is in it. You know what I mean? This is actually one of the best things I've seen him do. Like his performance was so, um, kind of moving. You know, it's clearly a father who has, uh, suffered some sort of loss. You don't know exactly what at the start, but it's obviously a kid because he's. You see him in the middle of nowhere putting a little T-shirt into a river, and uh, you know, as the plot goes on, you learn it's you know to commemorate the one-year anniversary of having uh, lost a child who was brutally murdered um, or uh, abducted and then murdered uh, on his watch. And so you you know, of course, that's a very easy way to empathize with a, a character. But uh, he ends up going. How does he get into this town? I've already forgotten. He, oh, there's a girl he sees, and this happens in the first five seconds, so it's not really much of a spoiler. He sees a teen girl trying to hang herself in the middle of the woods, and he stops it. And this is all in like the first five minutes of the show. Um, He stops it, and she won't tell him what's wrong or what she's trying to do. Um, But she says, he says, can I at least drive you home? And she says, I live on OC. It's that island over there. And he ends up driving down this two-mile causeway um, to get to this weird island um, that is out in the middle of the... And, and the- Becca really is just wanting to now tell you the history of causeways. And cue Becca, go. <laughs> tell them what a causeway is. In the- so I totally geeked out on this because I was so like, this is crazy. So a causeway is a road that is only open at specific times of the day because of the tide. Um, so it will open usually twice a day, only for a couple of hours when the tide is at particular points. And then the rest of the time, the road is buried. So you are literally stuck on the island unless during these specific times. Um, and I was trying to think other movies that I had seen causeways in. And the only one that came to mind was woman in black. And then I was suddenly like, huh, that place looks really familiar to this place. And that's because they are the same Island. Um, they are both OC Island in Essex and, uh, yeah. So, which is now on my top 10 places that I must see before I die. Yeah. Now this, this place, this, this show definitely makes you need to kind of go to the small town. So the basic structure is he then takes her to this town. People are super weird. Think worker man and all the all great classic British folk horror. People are super odd, but super nice, super kind. So, you know, you, you, you question, is he a little crazy? Because um, obviously there's something a little off with Jude Law's character at times too, because he's obviously gone through a lot. Uh, and what's interesting is we kind of chart his journey getting stuck there. He has a lot of backstory. There's so many things going on in his orbit. Uh, and the first three episodes are set in summer. And the next three are set in winter. None of this is really spoiler, but I didn't know that. And I was a little, it took me a little to adjust. So I actually might've liked knowing that in advance because it threw me a little when it made the leap. Uh, it was definitely jarring for me. Yeah. And I still liked it because I, I found it, yeah. the second, I found, um, so the first three episodes are definitely one all-inclusive, super tight, super tense. Like I fucking loved it story. Fourth episode comes out and it's a completely different time of year. 
with characters who are coming to the island, but everything is different. And so, and they don't explain that. And so it definitely threw me for a loop where I was like, what, are we just abandoning the last three episodes, the storyline that we had established that I fell in love with? Is it just gone now? And you get um, very emotionally engaged. In those yeah. it's, it's very much about lost grief and what you would do to get through it. And then also about history and legacy, uh, you know, maybe things that are destined, which is what a lot of folk horror seems to be about. Um, there's a film I saw uh, this year that I did mention on uh, Pure Cinema that it's, it's, I guess it was a BBC thing. It was shot uh, for television called Robin Redbreast. Mm-hmm. And it's very in line with that. In fact, you could make a direct connection to what happens to, to the, like what Jude Law's character is going through to what that movie's kind of about. I think you would like it a lot. Um, it's, it's one that's kind of cult and known well in the UK, but in this country, probably not at all because there's no real you know, version of it, but that's Robin it to my cue. Yeah. I just think the thing about folk horror, we'll definitely do an episode just on folk horror. I think. In yeah, we should. I think we we're talking about it. Cause we're both, dr- I know a lot of people, some, I know some people don't get into that uh, kind of horror, but there's something about it that I'm, I'm actually quite keen to dig into more of its traditions and kind of the historic. I know Kayla Janice is mm-hmm. working on a documentary with seven, yep. I believe on mm-hmm. folk horror. So I'll be curious to see what, uh, what, you know, kind of the origins of some of these tales, um, in British, uh, you know, history for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And this is, this was such a tight little one. So I, I really do recommend this. It's not, um, going to be gory. This is not, you know, walking dead or anything like that. It is definitely a slow burn. Um, but it is constant intrigue and there are actually some pretty intense moments to it now that I'm thinking about it. I think it's pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's definitely a little weird. So if you like weird stuff, uh, which I you know we both do, so uh, yeah. jump into it. But yeah, I was really surprised because I think maybe the third day to me sounds more like it would be a science fiction mm-hmm. type of thing, and maybe that made me go eh. So when you said folk horror, that's when I pushed play. So hopefully somebody else will listen to us here. Um. So okay. So originally when we were discussing, <laughs> that's where we are. So originally, which I feel like I feel like I left you on. I feel like I left you standing. Um, You're like, you know, let's do Happy Halloween. You told me we we're going to watch all of Sandler's films, so I watched all. I just finished <laughs> Jack and Jill before taping here. Shot by Dean Cundey, by the way. People don't know Jack really? and Bill. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so there's a horror connection. Our respect. Um, when we were talking what new film to, to, that we both should watch for this week, I originally was like, I think Hubie Halloween came out. I've heard it's amusing. And then Elric went and watched it. And then he was like, well, it's Adam Sandler. It is Adam Sandleriest." And I was like, I don't want to watch that. It, no, <laughs> let me, I won't even go deep, but I will say this. It's got a lot of heart, like actually a really good heart. Uh, it's a very good Halloween set film, which is what a lot of what we're going to talk about today so on that level i definitely reckon it's all shot in salem completely which is awesome because uh, anytime you get to see salem being shown off it's really just makes one to me one era and and some people love this uh, i i think adam sandler is fantastic and in the movies where he's just an actor I, I you know he's fantastic i thought you know obviously we both loved uncut gems and when he worked with P- pta and i like some of his early <clears throat> airheads uh, airheads is good yeah no it's just when he does that mumble voice this is about the worst of it ever. And I was like, oh, if he just didn't have that, I probably would have rather liked his character. He's really sweet. There's some real, in the first, I would recommend everyone watch the first five minutes. There's a couple gags in the opening that I think were laugh out loud funny. And then after that, I was just tolerating him and laughing and, and enjoying the Halloween decoration and kind of mm-hmm. vibe. Other than that, it wasn't, you know, it's not necessarily meant for me. Um, but, it, you know, it, there's worse things to kind of kickstart your Halloween with for sure. 
I uh, I enjoyed Adam Sandler's wacky voices and mixed nuts. Like that was the first movie I saw him do it in, and I remember thinking that was great. And I still that's like one of my holiday classics. And well, I love Billy that. Madison, and I love I love I love the, all the early ones. It's more it's that mumbly, um, like there's something de- like he's got something wrong with his brain voice, and I'm like, eh, that doesn't really. It, it kind of just makes you makes everything else a little harder to believe that mm-hmm. people and you know this woman falling in love with him kind of storylines. You're like, yeah, I don't see it. <laughs> you know what I mean? But again, it's Adam Sandler, so he's he's a little bit lovable regardless. But it is, the actual details of the Halloween stuff is kind of fun. Uh, so you know, there's worse. I think it's pretty good to just set the tone. Um, but yeah, I've, I saw better things. Let's just say. Okay. Well, um, I think Andrew Cash tweeted out like what I wouldn't kill for the production design budget on Hubie Halloween. So the fact that it's loaded with Halloween at all makes me want to see it. And Salem, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I saw the pale door. Um, which I know you had seen earlier in the summer because we talked about it on our Patreon show. Yeah, I did a double with Curse of the Undead, which just came out, the first kind of vampire black and white Western from the 50s. So this one, I was all in for the first part. Um, The whole setup of this is that it's a group of outlaw Western. It's very much a horror Western um, group of outlaws um, who are doing these bank runs decide that there is this massive, massive thing coming up. They know that they're going to be transporting what they think is a giant pile of money and they want to intercept this giant pile of money and steal it. And so it's a gang of like five or six um, guys and one woman. I thought you were um, about to say indie film actors. <laughs> five or six indie you know, film actors. Pat Healy and there's... <laughs> <laughs> there's Pat Healy. I saw Noah Segan. Yeah. Um, no, and I do have to say Pat Healy was great in it. Yeah, I love, good, and yeah. Noah, Noah was fun as well. Um, Noah in the bathtub. Um, but no, there was, there was a lot of fun in, in kind of the, the mix of actors and everything. But it's um, a gang of outlaw guys and one woman. Um, who decide that they are going to intercept what they think is a large amount of money being transported. And they get there, and it's not money. It's a woman with her mouth closed, like gagged, like she's bound and gagged in a trunk. And they're suddenly like, what the fuck? Where's the money? And who the hell is this? And they get really suspicious of her. um, And they start infighting about, like, we should just let her go. They were clearly trying to kidnap her versus wait, if she's just being kidnapped, why is she in a locked trunk, completely bound and gagged? Like, why did they go to all of these lengths? And why were they treating her like some valuable property? And um, they let her go, but under um, under gun fire, like they're, they're holding her hostage still. And one of the gang has been shot. And so they're trying to find a nearby hospital um, or somebody or a town. And the girl's like, I can take you to my town. And then they're like, okay. And then they get to her town. And then you realize that there is something seriously wrong with her and something seriously wrong with the town. Um, And it gets witchy. And that is where it stopped being amazing for me. I still enjoyed it. I still watched the whole thing. But that is where it shifted from, at least for me, from like a super tense horror Western that I was really digging, like how tight it was um, and thrilling it was and the mystery of it. And it went like full demon night. 
Um, and that would be what There's I would on witches. In it, yeah, there are some fun witches. It would be a good double with um, Eyes of Fire. You know, we were just highlighting that she in our 31 was. film because that's, exactly. you know, tree what? witches, uh, tree mud tree witches. witches. Yeah. Uh, but it, I, again, some, you know, I think sometimes when you do look, when you do period as, as anyone in indie world would know how tricky that will be if you don't really mm-hmm. have a budget to back it up. And, and I feel like it just kind of it stumbles a bit on that level. But um, there was a lot of fun in this. There was a lot I still enjoyed. And I really enjoyed the acting as well. I wasn't kidding when I said like Pat and Noah were great. And actually a lot of the people in it were just good. Well, the, the guy who kind of steals the movie is the guy from the, we are still here mm-hmm. remake, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the American version. I can't remember his that actor's name, but he's in tons of great indie IFC movies. Uh, uh, we are what we are. Remake. Yeah. 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 I can't recall the name of the actor, but he, he, he was in that one um, also by the night flyer director that about the car that, bumps into the person and then mm-hmm. uh, stalks them and stuff like that. He's, he's just a really strong actor. His name uh, eludes me. Um, yeah. I have an indie like that too. And and here's the difference between them. I think it's knowing your budget, knowing what you can pull off. And I think, I, I, look, I, that's not to say you shouldn't. I love big swings, you know, and that pale door to me is a really big swing. Um, but I got I, to- But that said, I will watch anything else this director does because I liked Camera Obscura. This definitely, even when, you know, it wasn't as much for me, it kept me completely interested. And I was still like, okay, you're doing something cool here. So whatever, um, Aaron Coons, whatever he does next, I, I will he's watch. he's part of maybe producing Scare Package, which I didn't see oh. the anthology on Shutter. Uh, my students keep recommending that to me. So whatever it is, it's hot with 18-year-olds. There you um, go. So yeah, so I need to check it out. Uh, something that I don't need to be anymore. <laughs> I'm okay with not being hot for a 13-year-old. I've, I've reached that comfortable place in life. Uh, I got to introduce uh, my fa- one of my favorite places on earth, the Knoxville Horror Film Festival, where I couldn't be there this year. Uh, oh, God, sh- I wanted to go. Shout out to Central Cinema. Um, but he, uh, William Mahaffey, runs it, managed to include me somehow uh, by doing an intro that I didn't know was going to be on the big screen of a What's drive-in. That? A year ago, we were at Knoxville. We were there a year ago, yes. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. That was a year ago. That is so wild. I have memories of that a year ago. Um, So I got to introduce a movie called The Stylist, which a lot of people are probably anticipating. So this is a not out yet be on your radar movie um, by Jill Givargizian. I have to always write it down carefully so I can pronounce it because I've butchered her name so many times. Hold on, uh, say it again. Never. Gevargesian. <laughs> <laughs> Gevargesian. Okay. Uh, our co-writer, Eric Stolze, one of the co-writers, and Eric uh, wrote um, that Late Phase is awesome. Uh, it's movie, awesome. such a badass one. I kind of feel like rewatching that. Um, but this was, you know, a lot of people were anticipating this because uh, her short had done so well. And and I, in quite honestly, didn't really know how you'd adapt that into a feature and the difference between this and say what we were talking about a second ago with pale door is kind of knowing the limitations of budget. And this is just actually a very hyper focused and incredibly restrained uh, character study film, mm-hmm. the whole film. It never goes completely off the rails. It never tries to be something else. And I, I, I really responded to that. Uh, uh, Nahara Townsend gives a really just brilliant performance. Bria Grant's really good uh, as the kind of object of her affection at a certain point, kind of a friend, that it starts crossing line. But what's cool, if you've seen the short, is it doesn't really go into backstory in this. And it just basically it starts with a stylist, you know, cutting people's hair. And then she goes right into her first kind of kill. I won't go much further than this straight away. There's no, oh, leading up to why she kills, which you could have done. It just, it almost uses the short film to say, you already know all this. So let's just jump right in. Um, and, and then you kind of uh, watch her 
you know, her kind of isolation. It's kind of, it's kind of a sad movie. You know, it's got that element of it. Um, I did after I, after I watched it and I really, no, I really enjoyed it. Um, I wrote to Jill and said, okay, now I want a maniac cop two type. A bonkers sequel with this character where you can go totally off the rails because it does have a little bit of maniac obviously because you know she mm-hmm. she's uh, a scalping uh, woman and you know taking the hair and placing it on herself at home and stuff uh, just like the short but uh but this one had it really again you have to go what is my movie and how am I going to go from 10 minutes to a feature and the, and the answer to that is character and emotion like creating an emotional story that you're intrigued by. And so I think, I think it did a really good job on that. So look out for that. I don't know if it's sold yet or where it's going to be coming out, but I'm sure it'll be a 2021 release would be my guess. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. Congratulations, Jill. Um, so then uh, the other one that I watched, this was actually one that I had watched as part of, I want to say Nightstream. Um, and I liked it so much. And I actually had another screening link. Somebody had sent me a second screening link. So I decided to um, watch it again because I was super tired the first time I'd seen it, which is why I didn't mention it on the show. And this is um, Queen of Black Magic. Hmm. And this one is headed to Shudder. I have no idea when, um, but it is headed to Shudder sometime soon. Um, this is a reboot, but not really. I've been told there's there's this Indonesian movie, Queen of Black Magic from the 80s. Um, that this is obviously somehow affiliated with, but they're not a direct storyline. I've been told it's more of kind of a prequel. I have not seen the original. Um, the director is Kimo Stamble, but the writer is Joko Anwar, who is um, the person behind Satan's Slaves, the reboot of Satan's Slaves, and Impedagore, um, both also on Shudder. So it was, I mean, this person... Um, Joko, I will, I will watch anything of theirs now. Um, and he wrote it. So the whole concept of this is that a whole bunch of orphans have come back to this orphanage. And I don't want to say a whole bunch. I will say a dozen. There's like maybe like five or six different families have come back to this orphanage because the person who raised them, the caretaker, is dying. And they're all coming back to kind of sit, wake with him while he passes away. And so they're all kind of there for the final 48 hours of his life. Once they all start getting back together and talking about, oh, do you remember this? Do you remember this? You find out that there was one orphan um, who disappeared that they never, they, they think that they just ran off and that there was also a death there while they were all there. And everybody's super uncomfortable talking about it. Um, and then all types of crazy fucking shit starts happening. This one gets super brutal super brutal. Um, very much like Satan slaves or Impedagore both get really brutal. This one gets even more brutal. This one was so intensely crazy. Um, a lot of centipede action in this one, um, which, you know, I have a thing about centipedes, but yeah, this one is using those like giant Indonesian centipedes where they're like six inches long and sting and like crawl out of things, um, and orifices. And yeah, so this one just absolutely super brutal. This is queen of black magic. I recommend checking this one out when it gets to shutter. It was a trip. You also made me interested wanting to see this original. Now I just looked on Letterboxd. It looks interesting. I want to see it as well because um, when... Sounds like a deep cut. I think so as well. When Joko Anwar did Satan's Slaves, I immediately went back and watched the original because Shudder put it out. Or sorry, not Shudder. Severin put it out. Severin did a release of the original one. Um, and I immediately went back and watched it. And it was really cool to kind of see... And to think like, you know, what it was like in Indonesia growing up with these kind of being your sacred 1980s movies. And then how do you, you know, 
Well, also, if you come from a country that doesn't, you know, coming from America, people grow up with hundreds and hundreds of movies made in their own country. But as somebody who only saw a Peter Jackson horror film, and that was like the only horror film I saw that had New Zealand voices when I was young, it took a long time before I saw any others, you know. Uh, So I know what that's like. It becomes kind of lore. It becomes uh, deified in a sense. So probably that became a big deal for him. So, yeah, he did. He did more than justice, you know. Yeah, so I, I am super excited to see what they keep doing. But yeah, Queen of Black Magic is um it's really intense. Really intense. All right. Well I my main watching, so this is a little bit of a pile here quickly, uh, because they connect is I kind of just unwittingly went down the rabbit hole of ghost movies, but these ones are a specific uh, I, I did watch Ghostbusters uh with kids for the very first time, showed them Ghostbusters, that was a lot of fun. Hadn't seen in a long time actually. Did they uh, get scared? Is this no, the original? Yeah, even that they both hid before the librarian moment because I warned them because that part probably would have ended the movie night right there. Uh, <laughs> so but after that there was nothing. I was gonna say that librarian fucked my shit up when oh, I was like yeah. six years old. Yeah. It totally fucked my shit up, but they're not that, they're not like me. Let me put it that way. They would probably that'd be the end of movie watching with me <laughs> if they saw that moment. But otherwise, they're great. Um, but okay, so I started with I was doing a research for an episode. We had to interview Joe Dante about his favorite um, kind of movies that were impactful to him. And of course, he didn't end up talking about this one, but it's one of his favorite horror films. So I rewatched The Innocents, uh, directed by Jack Clayton from '61. Uh, it's a Henry James adaptation, Turn of the Screw. Um, I did things I did not know. I did not know Truman Capote was a co-writer on this, which totally I blew had me away. no idea. I, mean, I didn't know he co-wrote any any screenplay. So I was that was fascinating. Um, but this is a movie, so obviously it's going to tie directly into a, a pretty obvious where I'm headed. But um, I didn't even think about it when I was watching it. Um, this is just it's a near perfect movie. It's like I know Criterion put it on but in terms of it, the way it's constructed I don't find it particularly scary it's eerie and has a, a really quiet uh, slow building kind of dread to it but um, you know it's obviously a, a you have these men who uh, cannot handle their uh, their cousin their sister's children you know and they're very rich and live in London but they have got a huge uh, you know huge home or whatever you call what do you call massive uh, Victorian homes not mansions that's an american word i feel um there's a better word for it in england manor uh, yeah manners exactly that's why I, that's why i love doing this with you, you got the phd and <laughs> phd in old british stuff um and uh of course manor old manor yeah, exactly uh, and he hires you know somebody to be a governess to uh, these two children. Uh, she gets out there. It's played by Deborah Kerr, who's just fantastic. It's really a, one of those great horror performances uh, in a movie. And she is slowly putting together the pieces that the previous uh, uh, governess probably didn't fare well, and that there was a love, a very dark, twisted love story with the valet, um, who has now also passed away. And these ghosts are trying to potentially possess these two children to be kind of reborn into the world. Um, All I'm saying is this is really a a near perfect movie. People should check it out. But what was cool is because I watched that, I directly went right into the haunting of blind manor, having not read anything about it and not realizing it was the exact same story. So basically here I am having just watched that. Then I start blind manor and go, okay, it's the same thing, but with lots of liberties, lots of twists, Mm -hmm. lots of added storylines. And uh, you know, a uh, couple of things we need to know about Bly Manor. Number one, Garth Marenghi. That's number one. So, okay. Uh, I have to, I need to tell a quick story about that. Um, so I got to shadow Mike Flanagan on the set of Bly Manor, which was awesome because I got to go to set and be on set for Bly Manor for like a week. And, um, and it was, it was incredible. Um, so I roll in. And I'm walking around the set and Mike's giving me this tour of the set. And there's this picture on the mantle and it's supposed like, it's there. It's like production design. And I look at it and I was like, 
did your production designer put bury a picture of Garth Marenghi in the set as just like a joke because, you know, for fun. And he was like, oh no, Garth Marenghi's in it. And I said, are you fucking kidding me? When does he get here? And he had already, he had just done his part when I arrived. And I was so, but I loved the idea that they were burying pictures of Garth Marenghi around the set. They also have the friend from The Room. The, guy, his, the best friend of Tommy Wiseau is in the, in the show at the start. So I feel like somebody is paying attention to their comic uh, gold. Uh, but if you are unfamiliar with Garth Marenghi's Dark Places, don't listen to the rest of this podcast. Go watch Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, one of the greatest things. Where can you happened. even watch it? I like, believe YouTube. I've got the DVD. I've got the DVD. I have, yeah, I have the UK yeah, DVD. Yeah, me too, me too. Yeah. Uh, but it's so funny. His name's actually, let's, in fairness, his name's Matthew Holness. And he also made a very interesting, very dark horror film last year called Possum that he directed Mm -hmm. and it's real bleak but it's also got a couple it's actually one that I didn't love while I watched it and I've thought about it a lot more than most of the movies that year same here I did when I was watching it I was like oh this is bleak I'm not into this this is making me sad I have not stopped thinking about it. Yeah, it's just got a couple of moments and images where you go, oh, yeah, it's just a very dark portrait. Anyway, I'm letting him overshadow, but it is very exciting. But it has all of Flanagan's regular actors. Henry Thomas, I think, steals this entire show, surprisingly. And I think I'm in the minority because I haven't seen many people talk about him. But there's an episode with just his character that I just thought was fantastic. Um, But, yeah, this is a very emotional show. It definitely um, didn't have... Uh, quite the same resonance with me as the first one, but that would be impossible to, I think, achieve because that first one is a perfect balance between actually scary and really emotional. This one's far more emotional, and I found myself very gripped by their stories and their lives, these characters. So similar, I won't recap the story. Uh, I guess it's a 10-part, is it 10-part? Something like that. Yeah. Um, and and some, you know, a lot of people we know directed really great episodes of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just, you know, so Flanagan didn't control this one, obviously, in quite the same way as the first because he directed all of the first season, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but the, it has a very, very emotional ending. So I, I definitely recommend it. It's just a very different experience. Um, there's still some really creepy stuff in it. It's, I, would, I'd say, I think the difference is this is creepier, brighter lit kind of creep and that's why it's maybe a little more emotional because it it feels like there's a lot more daylight or uh more lit scenes whereas when i think of the first season i think of very dark very blue and very sad like it's Mm -hmm. very sad that first season um but anyway so this was great but now i have to give you my the deep cut twist on this uh for those who are following this two things one i didn't know that dan curtis who we all love um also did a turn of the screw that's on amazon i did not watch i watched the first minute and it looked a little bbc kind of stagey uh, i was gonna try to finish the trifecta but it's bbc stagey i just bought all those not all, no no uh, Christmas ghost movies today that get, i'm excited get, about get ready then. what get ready then because my next is a bbc christmas ghost story um what? how did you do that i just bought all those and yeah i saw you thank the host guys i feel like i've been talking about nothing but this for the last like two months no uh, I, trust me if you listen to the other podcasts i did a whole one all on the bbc ghost because i'm obsessed by them uh the host guys came in and talked to um it was when i did their interview for salem film festival and um on salem film festival i said okay guys recommend me something i haven't seen before um and that was like my final question was tell me to see something I haven't seen and they were like BBC Christmas ghost movies yeah no so it's it is different like in America we have not grown up with this tradition that on Christmas they play, make a actually BBC puts out these incredibly creepy ghost stories uh, a couple the one you bought today which is one of the best the signalman is a Charles Dickens adaptation but all the rest are MR James stories for the most part and uh, I've become just somewhat I haven't seen them all yet but I've seen 
I guess the majority now, but MR James has started digging around and I guess he's, you know, somebody just wasn't really on my radar. And, you know, he's from probably, I guess the 1930s or, or mm-hmm. somewhere in there. And I know Lovecraft thought he was the best writer uh, of ghost stories. Um, and so uh, this one ties directly into the two things I just mentioned. It's called Lost Hearts. And it's what's cool about these, this, they range from about 35 to 60 minutes. None of them tend to be longer than that. Uh, this one is, uh, they're all directed by the same guy for the most part. His name's Lawrence Gordon Clark. He directs almost all of them from the seven. This one's 73, 1973, and it's about 35 minutes. And it is so perfect. And good news for those who are excited. It is actually in a very good version on YouTube right now. Um, so basically a young orphan goes to, uh, is told that he is, uh, you know, going to be looked after by somebody who's a distant relative. So he gets uh, taken out to a, this, a, it looks like the exact same manner that the innocence is shot at. Uh, and he meets this much older man who's very kind of charming and boisterous. And he's kind of like, oh, okay, this, I guess I'll live here now. Um, and then he starts seeing, it's cool. It's the inverse of uh, The Haunting. With The Haunting is about two uh, older dead people trying to kind of resurrect themselves inside these kids. Basically, these two dead kids are start to kind of haunt the boy, and they're it's almost like they're trying to warn him of something, and then at some point he realizes neither of them have their heart anymore, and then the intentions of this kind uncle character start to become clear. I won't ruin that part, but man, is it fucked up like it's creepy like you're watching this very quiet ghoster and then when you start putting the pieces together you go wait a minute and it's all happening in within about 35 minutes and uh and and it's got a really really great kind of uh build to a very creepy moment so i i would mention more of these but this one ties in so perfectly with those others so it's a perfect kind of trilogy there the innocence haunting a blind manor and then lost hearts uh from the bbc nice that is a hell of a collection Um, Well, let's move into our DVD of the week this week. Our DVD of the week is brought to you by Diabolic DVD, um, who we love dearly. They are just good people over there, and uh, you should definitely hit them up for all of your Black Friday buy needs. Um, But our movie from Diabolic tonight is Messiah of Evil. Which I'm interested is, that you call it DVD of the week. I would say Blu-ray of the, of the Blu-ray. Week. Uh, yeah, because this is because this is a Blu-ray or Blu-ray or Brule. how do you pronounce? Well, it? Actually, we are talking about yeah, it's Brulee if we're talking about uh, the company that put this one out, which is Code. Yeah, Red. this is Code Red. This is Code a Code Red, Red one. Um, so Messiah of Evil is honestly one of those movies that I think like Elric and I probably connected and like geeked out over at some point because it's one of those that not a lot of people have seen um but when you see it it is just absolutely amazing this is from 1973 and tonally it's pretty in line with i would say if you guys are fans of howard the duck or american graffiti it's very much in line <laughs> with that kind of filmography um and indiana jones Temple. it's definitely one of the oddest like when you look at that filmography you go what <laughs> like- yeah, so it's written by this husband and wife writing team yeah who is responsible for, um, they, they go on to, do, I think it's the National Treasure movies that they do. Well, they, they, uh, they wrote uh, Temple of Doom. They oh, wrote that was American it. Graffiti, the same year as Messiah of Evil. Um, they directed Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck, yeah. And there's something else that they did. I'm confusing them with another husband and wife writing team, I think, but on the National Treasures. Mm. Um, but yeah, and so they have this like crazy lexicon of stuff. Um, but honestly, I love Messiah of Evil. The whole setup of it, it's a real kind of quiet, slow burn film until it's not. And the world blows up um, where a girl um, gets a, a message, like a, a, a message from her dad um, who's kind of reclusive and she hasn't talked to him in a long time. And the message is real erratic and really crazy and says she needs to come home. 
So she heads home to Point Dune, which is this little seaside town. And what she discovers is that the whole town is kind of going crazy. Um, like everybody in the town starts kind of unhinging and losing it. And, um, and then finding out why that's happening and what's happening and how it's going. And it gets bonkers. It's, it's like, the def- to me, it's the definition. Outside of Fulci, it's the closest, I'd say, nightmare logic horror movie. Mm-hmm. It, it might be the best. And, and, and maybe one of the most Lovecraftian movies that's not... Uh, a Lovecraft text. Yeah. It, it gets closer to that than most films do. It's super weird. It was also had the title Dead People. Um, and I got to see it luckily on a, I think it was an all nighter. And I think f- when Phil played it, Dead People, the title came up. It's like, oh, okay, interesting. Um, what's weird is that they're not big fans of it. And this is to me like almost, I'd say this is top 10 horror for me. Um, I love this yeah. movie. This is one that I, the, the, even just the single images from it. Oh, yeah. Um, I always use this my cover photos on Facebook all the time because there are so many images like the girl sitting in the theater um the stained glass windows there's just so many like it's got single two, two major iconic uh sequences are as you're just talking about there's a movie theater sequence which basically does what they what hitchcock does with tippy hedger and the birds right you sit down one bird comes you back to the woman's face another bird and then suddenly she turns around and there's like all the birds they do it exactly but with all these kind of zombie-ish people and it's super cre- it's probably the best movie theater horror scene i think you know yeah. um and then the and the, there's a meat kind of supermarket scene but yeah if you haven't checked this one out i know a lot of people who've been, who follow us will have heard us mention it before but it's a movie i think i own the poster the vinyl the the blu-ray uh, I and i still can tell you the storyline yeah <laughs> um beautiful nightmare logic and you can pick this up at diabolicdvd.com. that is d-i-a-b-o-l-i-k dvd.com we a, love them and a bit more of an imperative because when it's uh that company a uh, code red you just never know if they're going to print more you never know if it'll ever yep. happen again so if you can get that on blu-ray own it have it physical media forever yes okay on to our uh, our topic for the night yeah so okay so we'll, we'll, well this came from a couple back and forth because basically we've done a lot of halloween episodes and we have you know we could just talk about trick or treat a million more times you but mean a, trick or treat that's what i mean yes exactly uh <laughs> or halloween three two of our favorites uh yeah. at this time of the year but but we were kind of going well how do we how, you you i can't remember which came first uh there was one comment to do like oh well we could do something for like we could plan movies that are good for kids and go up in kind of the edginess. And then you said something about the rating system and then suddenly we married them and decided, okay, the ratings of Halloween. So we are basically going to, we're going to kind of go delve into the rating system and its impact on horror a little bit. But then uh, beyond that, what we decided to do was to pick one uh, Halloween set or kind of Halloween-y type movie for each uh, one of the five ratings from the G, PG, PG thirteen R, and NC seventeen, and so that's so just to kind of give anyone who would listen uh, something that they would be able to watch on Halloween. Yes. Um, so we were going to start with like a super brief history of the ratings yeah. system, just because I find it really fascinating. And Elric told me I can't go too deep dive because seriously, I I will do a three hour lecture just on the rating systems. I'll save that for a Patreon episode. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's the history of American movies. I mean, it is. And, and in a lot of ways, sometimes, I mean, I almost had a job as a censor in New Zealand when I was straight out of school, and I'm gl- really glad I didn't take it. But in, in New Zealand, it's a little more restricted. Like, they could actually ban things in that way. Obviously, the video nasties, the way they were banned in the UK and prosecuted is worse. But I view this as... Um, you know, kind of abhorrent that we still have a system like this. Uh, there, uh, we'll go into more reasons why uh, as you go. But yeah, like kick us off from the, obviously this is post-Haze Code stuff. So 
Well, I mean, before, and this is, you'll hear Elric and I talk about pre-code movies. And pre-code movies um, are stuff from like pre-1934 when it was like the Wild West in Hollywood and you could put whatever you really wanted in a movie and there was really nobody to stop you because no rating system had been developed yet. And we really should. Why didn't you come up and see me sometime? That whole thing, yeah. Like you could put sex in, you could put drugs in. Like there are some that I'm just, I'm still just like, oh my God, I can't believe that was in there. Um, but so I think we should do a pre-code horror episode at some point, just because there are some really, really good ones. Um, but that's kind of what that means is in 1934, all of these people had been, um, church groups, parent groups had been saying like, there is no concept of regulation with these movies. You can put in whatever you want and our kids can go see them because there is no one stopping it. So like my 13 year old son is going and seeing these sexy films and things like that. So there were all of these groups freaking out about it. So they create what they call the Hayes Codes. And the Hayes Code um, ran from 1934 technically to 68, but people stopped paying attention to it by like the mid-60s, which I'll talk about in a sec. But what this was is it was a really extensive, it's long, list of things that you were not allowed to have in movies. It's also highly, highly racist. Um, When you read it now, you realize kind of like where the lack of diversity in Hollywood comes from. And a lot of it was these regulations being put forth, like you can't have interracial kissing. Um, or interracial, you know, relations like of any type was one of the actual Hayes codes. Um, so it, it's like homosexuality was one of the Hayes codes could not be included. Um, some of it is 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 kind of you know cute for like 1920s or 30s style where it's like no first night scenes and that means like no wedding scenes and things mm. like that. But then the rest of it is just horribly racist. And it really did control everything. And this is why when we move into the 1950s, everything that we see is squeaky clean. Um, it's why, or 40s and 50s, it's why suddenly everything got really squeaky clean. And when we think about 1950s movies, we tend to think about it in this kind of like very squeaky clean thing. Yeah, except and- some noir. I mean, I think what, what you get, the, the actually, there, there are some benefits. There's some things I'm thankful for, which is it forced filmmakers who are all a bunch of subversive ma- mad people, right? Yeah. To really go up and show as much as they could and then, and then insinuate even worse stuff. Yep. Because that's the way to subvert it. Much like Hitchcock does even a lot of time. You, you actually can say quite a lot of very dark ideas, uh, and to get around Hayes Code because all they were looking for is on screen. They had to be present on screen for them to really yeah. notice. And the example I give of that when I teach is not from a horror film, but I always point out in Streetcar Named Desire, um, in Streetcar Named Desire, whenever Marlon Brando is talking about having sex with Stella, he says, let's get all those pretty lights going above the bed. Mm. And what he's talking about is having sex. But he says it all the time, like, come on, baby, let's just go get all those pretty lights going again. And it's very much like a jazz music thing where you couldn't point blank say, you know, let's go have sex. So it became honey and jelly rolls and things like that. And so, yeah, it's this wait, wait, all I kind of more like- about jelly rolls. <laughs> How do we do a jelly roll? How does that work? What's a jelly it's roll? A mean, it's a Nina Simone song. Oh yeah. Um, or wait, no, that was just put a little sugar in my bowl. She may have a jelly roll song okay, too. Okay. Um, but anyway, um, but yeah, it is this kind of subversive thing of how we get at sex and violence and crazy horror without actually kind of seeing it on screen. And even kisses were cut down to like literally about a second of a kiss and then you're cutting out of it. So it creates a very artificial neutered version of life. 
for cinema? So those became what everyone had to follow. There was no rating system. There was no, okay, you can be, you know, a G, you're all audiences, you're hard R. That was all that existed up until the 1960s. And then as society got a little looser and things started getting a little bit more um, crazy and, and kind of rebellious in the 1960s, filmmakers really started testing the Hays Code. So we see things like Drug use is completely outlawed in the Hays Codes. No drug use whatsoever. Suddenly we see psychedelics start entering the screen. Um, it begins actually with uh, Castle puts it in the Tingler. Mm. And that was kind of like, okay, well, it's there, but it's pharmaceutical and he's using it, you know, um, to experiment on himself. But then slowly things start eking in. And then we have people like Herschel Gordon Lewis. And Herschel Gordon Lewis starts making movies which break like tons of Hayes codes straight out. And they're like, we're not going to give this approval. And he's like, I don't care. I already sold it at 10 theaters in Topeka. So what the fuck does it matter? And they and started was, suing. They actually started yep. being sued for freedom of speech as well. The Hayes code. So yep. it was interesting. Yeah. And so it became this by about the mid 1960s, early to mid um, people realized that if they didn't follow the Hayes codes, Nothing was going to happen. They could still sell their movie. It just didn't matter. And so the Hayes Codes kind of formally started breaking down um, in the late 60s. And then by 1968, we shifted over to something kind of like the rating system that we know now. We had G, which was for general. We had M, mature. And then we still had R and X. And then when we get into 1972, the M became PG, which was parental guidance suggested. Um, and then the next big change that we see happens in the 1980s. And this is when PG-13 comes into play. And this was honestly Steven Spielberg and Joe Dante's fault. Mm -hmm. um, so we'd had PG. In the 1980s, again, filmmakers really start pushing that. And we see Steven Spielberg, who at this time he'd made E.T., he'd made, um, you know, all of these cutesy little films. And then he made Temple of Doom. And um, this is right around the time of Gremlins and Poltergeist, all of which are PG movies. And so kids are, parents are taking their kids to see, you know, Temple of Doom, Gremlins, and Poltergeist and going, this is not a PG movie. There is some crazy fucking shit in this. And so they realized that they needed something between PG and R. So in the mid-80s, we get PG-13. Um, it's weird to look back at movies now, like Psycho is PG, um, which is because I, I always showed it in my high school class. And I'm like, it feels way more extreme than a PG. Yeah, I mean, one of the other issues uh, that charted and Exorcist has been the one cited about this, which is the problem that studios have a lot more power because they spend a lot of money in Hollywood and they spend a lot of money advertising. Independent films have always been the ones shafted yep. by these restrictions. And what happened with Exorcist is clearly, if anyone's seen The Exorcist, that if ever there was an X or an NC-17, Exorcist deserves it for some of the very graphic things it shows. And what yeah. happened, they basically got a call from the board saying, actually, you know what? We, we know you're spending a lot of money, so we're not going to give you the X, which would make your film impossible. We're going to give it the R. And it went wide and everyone went to this freaking movie and people start passing out and then i guess the guy taking over the company the mpaa or what or whatever it was at that point was just like wait if this isn't an x what the hell could be because this is yeah. you know she's masturbating with the crucifix it's pretty extreme so uh so and it's still that pro that problem of the exorcist which i call the exorcist exemption in a sense hasn't gone away if it had been no. an indie film it wouldn't have wouldn't have gone that pass 
And we still see that today where indie films get shafted when it comes to these. If an indie film comes in with the same scene or the same level of violence that you'll see in a big budget studio film, the studio film will oftentimes get a pass. The indie film will not. And so there is still this kind of um, uh, definite disparagement happening there. And um, wording and- that, what about the wording of the word? The word that bothers me in all of this, and I heard Joe Dante talk about it at one point, they're looking for intensity of violence. It's yep. like, well, what other kind of violence are you going to portray? Like if you're a good director, so basically they're going to get you, not on the on-screen violence, the thing you're showing, but on the actual filmmaking chops that you're displaying and then make it a worse scene by cutting something out because that's it actually is in the wording it says we are looking out for the intensity of the violence and to me that's just like which is a a filmmaking style um and then there's also all of these crazy stories that happen with the the rating system things like um boys don't cry which you know the murders were fine the violence was fine but the girl kissing another girl was cut down. Um, well, and and so, well, it shouldn't, you know, the part that, okay, so there's a great documentary called This Film Is Not Yet Rated. That's it. Okay, yeah. I was like, I know I saw this in yeah, a Yeah, it's fantastic somewhere. by Kirby Dick. And my note was, I'm just glad there's a system to protect me from seeing a woman experience pleasure during sex. Phew. Like, yeah. thank God I don't have to yeah. know that. That was it. They cut her yes. orgasm. Yes, that her, was no, they it. cut her face from experiencing pleasure was the thing they were scared of. And it just puts it in perspective that this is a group. Here's the thing about any group that is censoring your shit. Who are you? Then you find out who they are. They're a bunch of moms and a bunch of grandmas and a bunch of people who are like, it's kind of like, I'm sure there are guys in there too. There are, but I mean, you read about it and it's literally not movie people. It's people who are like, basically they're trying to find people who are probably not the people who would enjoy any of these movies. Right. And so it's just makes you go, I don't give a, shit about any of these people i don't care who they are and who who they're protecting us Uh, the guidance is cool it's cool to say hey uh, i don't want my nine-year-old to go to an nc what would be an nc-17 but they should be just that guidance they should not be enforceable because uh as we know the bigger problem here being horror fans and why it relates to horror is that nc-17 rating as the x rating was is a kiss of death it's game over if you get theatrically even the r we were kind of working up to the r so the r if for horror is is a bold thing like people always complain about pg-13 horror why did this movie go pg-13 we don't want pg-13 horror it opens up so many profitability models so if you need to make sure that your movie makes money i mean you go full insidious you find a way to make a movie pg-13 and still make it scary as shit um but you know it's allowing people to come see your movie an entire subsector of people who want to see your movie. Teens are a huge horror audience. But if your movies are, they can't get into it when they want to go see, you know, a movie. Wasn't so this tied it, into the issue that happened within the mouth of madness, uh, not in the mouth of madness, the mountain at the mountains of madness that uh-huh. wanted to make an R film and they wanted to, they said it had to be PG 13. So he didn't do it. But then and I, was- yeah. It was all the budget as well. And Guillermo later said, I should have just made it PG. Well, well, what they should do, and now this is like, yeah, I think this is what it's getting at, especially because the model of how we view things is different. I would say in that model, you put out a version theatrically that's PG-13 with the guarantee that the hard R is going to hit you know, the other markets afterwards. And then you get two profit streams potentially, you know? Well, I will say having read the Mountains of Madness script, there's not a PG-13 version yeah. of it. Like there, the what I read, um, I read his script, uh, the one that he wanted to shoot um, and did a whole podcast on movies that were never made. 
um, for it. And yeah, it would be hard to turn it into a PG-13 movie. But for Guillermo, he was preserving what Lovecraft intended. He was making it intense. He was making it bonkers. You know, everything's decaying. There's wild stuff happening. um, And everyone's crazy. But for Universal... That movie was going to cost them, I think it was $120 million. It could have been even more. Because I think yeah. Tom Cruise was in talks. Yeah. And uh, so for anything that is that high of budget, you have to open it up. Unless every single person in America can go see it at the multiplex if they want you're not going to make your money back. And so you have to open it up. And so, yeah, these, these ratings do become kiss of death for certain movies. Um, And so in the 1990s, X transitions to NC 17. And it was because X always has this connotation with porn. Um, Anytime you see an X, you immediately assume, Oh, there's actual fucking in it. And so um, they kind of, you know, okay, fine. You can be X, double X, triple X. And there's actually things that classify those um, of what is an X, what's a double X, what's a triple X, all those. I I don't know what they are, Um, but I do know that, you know, there's its own rating system within the porn classifying that. But we had some dramatic, I think Midnight Cowboy got an Oscar nomination, even though it was an X X film. Clockwork Orange is obviously an X. So there, so, you know, it it is interesting. I don't know when, what year was it when it changed to NC-17? It was 1990s. I don't know the exact year off the top of my head, but it was in the nineties. Um, and so, yeah, so film, regular films became NC-17 and X was reserved for porn and whatever their X, double X, triple X rating system is. Um, and so, That brings us to current and NC 17 is a total kiss of death for a filmmaker um, to the point that most filmmakers will not even quibble about cutting their films down to get it to an R and what they have you cut out is it's when I was looking through and researching some of these, it's actually, it's completely ridiculous. Like we see 10 seconds of the decapitated head rolling. Um, if you cut it to two seconds, it's an R. If you see 10 seconds, it's an NC-17. I'm also going to guess that's where the term frame fucking really came from because yes. it's a great <laughs> editing term, but I bet you it came from the fact that you would submit a cut to them and they would say, ask for changes. You would change just a couple frames, send it back. Yep. Like, oh, frame you, fucking you took all our notes, even though you changed a frame. Um I heard some pretty. I've heard some pretty good stories uh, of people who have basically just shot, including Friedkin on cruising, just shot about eighteen minutes of footage that was basically pornographic because he knew that would be what would get their attention. He had no intention of placing it in his movie at all. He shot it, put it in the movie just so they would get freaked out about it. So they wouldn't cut as much of the stuff he did intend. So there were so many, that's what's so arbitrary about it. Um, and what they're going to be, what, who you're going to offend that day. I, I just don't like moral police. Um, yeah. especially because we all know when you usually look behind that rock, what you really find. And Jack Valenti, who really started the MPA, uh, again, is a producer type in the first place. So, I don't. I don't trust the whole system, but you know it's what we're dealing with. So uh, there's not. My, there's no way around it yet. I would. I'd be shocked uh, ten years from now if it exists. Even less, maybe five. Really? Yeah, I think. I, I think we're about to go through a big change. Anywhere. I think. I think the change that we're going through now, and and the rest- how theaters, some will there'll be a lot of restructuring and online platforms. If things are coming directly to online streaming, then you're not going to be able to uh, really restrict them in the same way. So I think. And I will say that's been the weird thing when suddenly I see online like. Serbian film is streaming on Netflix, Baskin on Netflix. And I'm like, that, you know, it does open up the doorway because that was a big thing. Um, And why NC-17 has always been the kiss of death is that most theaters, especially your big ones, like your big multiplexes, any of your like AMC chains, things like that, 
will not play NC-17 movies. It's just a policy. Um, and you definitely, you know, there's, there's a lot of theaters that won't do it. And previously, it was really hard going if you were NC-17 because it was really going to limit what distributors you could work with um, and things like that. And even where you could go, there was a point where Blockbuster wouldn't like put those movies with others and things like that. You can't go in Walmart, which is a big moneymaker for most filmmakers. Um, and not being able to have your movie in Walmart, it's a big thing. But because we're heading more to a direct consumer uh, pattern, like the, the fact that Gaspar Noe's Love 3D, which had already been out for about a year, was on Netflix a couple weeks ago, st- suddenly was trending because teenagers were daring each other to watch it. And so it became so with people who, sh- <laughs> who are listening to this rating system, it would, I was like, why is this the number one movie on Netflix right now? Like, who is even watching? And then I found out from my students, they were like, oh, you don't know it's the big teen thing to do right now because everyone's watching it because it's literally has some pretty wild sexual explicit so imagery. They gave up Tide Pods for Gaspar. No, no Tide Pods directly lead to Gaspar Noe. It's like, it's a direct, a direct correlation. of all the movies that they're daring each other to watch. Well, that's that. the only one of his that was streaming. And I think it's because it's got some flying ejaculation type stuff that is probably uh, exciting for people to giggle about. But um, again, let's, let's not, before we even go forward, let's talk about America's um, problem with sex. Uh, a lot of it is probably because of the Hayes Code, because if the Hayes Code had never come in, we would have probably felt a lot more naturalistic about what was shown on screen. Instead, we went to complete repression, and then we get into like the 80s and 90s, and it's all steamy sex stuff, because suddenly we're free of the tyranny of, of you know these restrictions. So I think a lot of the patterns of how we feel and demonize uh, sex and violence um, are played out because of these shifts in these codes. So I think there's another big shift, is all, all I'm saying, because we've now we're not just in the wild west the wild west is going to become the norm the wild oh, west, yeah. and i will say that the Hayes codes are also um and even the rating system now is incredibly sexist um the amount of male nudity including penises that you can include is a lot compared to like one vagina and and you know yes you're, basically you're a- lots of vagina or just kevin bacon is you choose <laughs> options one kevin bacon one kevin bacon makes up for most of the male species though, so that's cool except for willem dafoe who's right on his heels no like if you um i remember the book finding or the movie um finding oh gosh chasing i can't even remember now but there was one that had like a lot of penis in it um that was a story because it was a comedy and so you see his it's like part of the in joke is you see his penis in it like four times but if you had seen a vagina four times, it would have totally been NC-17. Well, it's, I think it's also related to who controls the, who's been making the movies. It's been predominantly male, uh, male gaze. So that makes a lot of sense in that, in that level. But, but, you know, I think a lot of these things will start to shift. So yeah. uh, that's one of the fun things. So, okay. Well, that, that said, yeah, we use this kind of as our guide. And what we wanted to do was give a, um, a Halloween movie. Now, not all of these are set on Halloween, um, but something that makes us feel Halloween, something that we would consider to be a good Halloween watch. And so we wanted to start with G, thinking that it would be like a kid's recommendation, and then go all the way up to NC-17. Yeah, I have a couple cheats, um, one that I couldn't crack. And, uh, but it's also just like, it's just like a, a viewing party. Like imagine this was your, yeah. your day, your kids can join you then, then, you know, your teenager and then, uh, so on and so forth. So we'll start with G, uh, do you want to kick us off with your G? All of yes. mine, I think do take place in some way on Halloween, I think. Um, so I'm going to start with Halloween town. 
Um, I was hoping which, you would do that. I haven't yeah, seen Yeah, Halloween Town, which I don't even know if this is, I feel like it's G because it's a made for TV movie. Um, so yeah, Halloween Town um, is a 1998. And I included this one because um, my daughter is named after this movie, a combination of this movie and Hitchcock. Um, Hitchcock's Marnie. Um, so Halloween Town, the lead character is Marnie. Um, her, she, Debbie Reynolds is in this. Um, Marnie learns that her grandmother played by Debbie Reynolds is actually a witch and that she is a witch too. And that they have to save this town of Halloween town, which is where all of the monsters and witches live. And they have to save it from these evil forces that are trying to destroy Halloween town. Um, this was eventually made into a return to Halloween town sequel, which is equally fun. We own both of them. They are regular Halloween screenings. Every single time I've been to Disney for any shred of a meeting, a pitch meeting, a how do you do, a general, a hey, we like this, I have tried hmm. to get them to buy a Halloween Town remake. And no one has taken me up on it. Oh, so wow. one day, one day I'm gonna be at Disney for just the most inane like lunch meeting, and I'm gonna be like, guys, Halloween Town, let's do it. Let's do another sequel. That's easier than I know, I know. I want I want this so bad. So I mean, well, both the sequels were pretty back to back in the nineties. Um, and then the second sequel I think was like early two thousands. So we've had like a twenty year break. Is there anything um, because we're you know, we're talking about the ratings, is there anything in that that is at all kind of trauma or disturbing, like if you're a kid? It has scary. some scary moments. Yeah, it definitely has some scary moments. I first let Marnie watch this one when she was four. And though she definitely wasn't traumatized and kept watching, some of the monsters are kind of scary. Um, and so it's definitely got some kinder trauma moments, but it's still, it's not, it's not Monster Squad. Uh, my G is Creepshow, uh, the the Romero movie. Um, I saw this at five, so fuck all your kids. Inflict <laughs> <laughs> upon them what was done to me. Uh, no, uh, this is this is the the movie, the only movie I have to watch every year. I think Halloween three comes close almost every year. I would want to watch Halloween three, but it's not G. No, but the one that I watch every single year, I watched it again last night, is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow or The Adventures of Ichabod. Uh, oh, not, yeah. not the Mister Toad part. I think it's the greatest it might be my favorite animation made it film um it's directed by the guys who did the two guys who directed this directed every single snow white cinderella every single one of the classics uh this one's from uh 40 i think it's 49 um and watching it again i always forget the the build-up is just so innocent and i forget he's not such a he's not so unpopular he's actually popular with the girls even though he's got this huge nose and these big ears and he's gangly and yeah, that teacher well, he's a teacher right he's a music teacher and yeah. he's teaching them singing and i forgot that they all kind of um gush over him that was the part i had just totally forgotten and yeah. then he goes to a party and, and as he gets increasingly this uh, as you know as his rivals telling the scary story um about the headless horseman that's what kind of gets him. and what i i was walked away from it watching it this time going oh a it's totally pretty dark for a G you know, like it like it's definitely one of my earlier um, experiences watching something scary and once the headless horseman stuff is rolling it's the animation so gorgeous but it's really so about, terrifying. it's really about fear it's it's about storytelling like this is a great because the person's telling you a scary story and then he takes it all into his body and in his mind and suddenly he goes into a forest just like we would tell a scary story and you suddenly animate every little element the trees alive the, the willows and yeah. it's, that sequence is as good as it gets uh this is narrated by ben crosby but the one thing I, I kept, and it actually has a lot of sexuality implied too, I thought for a G, like uh, there's a lot of stuff that he's fantasizing about that is doing it in that kind of subversive way, I thought. But um, 
all I could think about watching this time is like, oh my God, if they had made a live action version of this in the 60s with Anthony Perkins, he would have been the greatest actor. Yes. He's just oh my gosh. to play that. And, I, and, I, and then the last name is Crane. Um, Ichabod Crane and Marion Crane is the character in Psycho. So maybe there's a connection. I don't know. Um, but anyway, I have to start with that as my G. It's, it's a classic. So every year at California Adventure, they um, set up this massive headless horseman statue in the middle of the main street there. Um, by the way, I am so just flummoxed and going through withdrawal that I can't go to Disney Halloween this year. Mm. It is my favorite time of year at Disney. It is just fantastic. Um, but yeah, I miss, I have so many pictures of myself in front of that statue and, uh, yeah, I deeply miss it. So yeah, fantastic G picks. I also had as a potential Halloween tree, um, which is the Ray Bradbury. That's G that feels PG to me. That's got it some does. Adult stuff I think it. actually, I don't think I checked, but yeah, it does have some adult stuff in it. Cause their friends like dying yeah, and they're no, it's, trying it's to a really save good. him. I only saw that oh. first, first time cause of you last year. And I was really like, I, I was quite moved by it. It's quite a, quite a great little story. My kids love it. It's dark though. And it's, um, uh, what's his name? Something moon shroud, like the, the evil guy in it, his oh, last yeah, name's yeah. moon shroud, yeah. but it's Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, the whole thing's just a trip. Okay. So PGs. PG. This one is weird because a lot of the things that I assumed were PG were actually PG-13. Um, like I will just say that I showed my daughter Monster Squad last week, um, which there was nothing in it that I considered to be that controversial. But then I realized it's PG-13. Um, it's scary, though. It's got a couple scary beats. Yeah, it does have some scaries in it. And I will say that like the one thing that took me out of it this time was um, the the use of the F word. Mm-hmm. Um, they The 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 gay um slur, slur. f word um they say it multiple times in there and i i didn't stop the movie because i definitely you know it's still one of my favorite movies ever but i stopped and i explained it and then backed it up and everything um i wouldn't you know let that it it made it i wasn't expecting that though and i obviously didn't remember it from my own childhood but pg i went with hocus pocus i'm glad you did because this is one i have not seen this in 20 some years. And every year I, I think maybe I need to watch this again because I didn't, you know, I didn't really think about it when I was 20, I wouldn't have cared. Um, but it's one that I know you like. And so uh, you, you're going to convince movie. me to watch it this year. Convince me. Yeah. So Hocus Pocus, um, this is a Disney movie directed, um, or Mick Harris actually wrote he this wrote it, one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is the Sanderson sisters. So, um, and this one, I love that they have started replaying this at theaters. Like not that we can go to theaters in LA. Um, but when I, looked this back up to get the year on it. It was suddenly like now playing and it listed all these theaters across the nation that it's playing at now. So I love that this has this generation who remembers this from the nineties has aged up enough that they are now kind of like sharing it with their kids. And it really has become a much bigger phenomenon than it was, you know, when I was a teenager and in college going, Oh no, I fucking love Hocus Pocus. Um, So the whole setup of this is um, that there are, these kids who accidentally um, free a coven. Um, it's set in Salem. It's shot in Salem. And uh, they accidentally free this coven and at Halloween. And um, it, is, it is just funny. It's grotesque. It's got Bette Midler 
not in any way refined. Like you always think like Divine Miss M or Beaches when you think Bette Midler. This is just down and dirty Bette Midler. Um, it's got Sarah Jessica Parker who plays the kind of sexy one. It's got a lot of music in it um, that has definitely become kind of sacred canon. They sing a version of I Put a Spell on You. There's this one song, Come Out and Play. Um, and it's Salem, right? That it, this one's Salem. Yeah. Well. And it is just, it is classic Halloween. Um, is the way that I always look at this. I saw this one in middle school and it has just stuck with me. And it became one of those kind of like my teen witch um, where, you know, there was just something about it that really defined me as a kid. And that has just stayed with me. And this is one that I still, I will now watch it with my kids every year. Um, and when I do go to Disneyland, I buy every piece of Hocus Pocus merch they have. Well, this will tell us the difference in PGs because this PG I wouldn't show my kids quite yet. I know it's a favorite of yours. I haven't seen this mm-hmm. in 20 years. One of the best things I've rewatched all year. I watched it a couple nights ago, and that is Something Wicked This Way Comes. So good. Did it you is, show that to your no, kids? No, 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 no. Oh. No, because it's too – I think the it's an incredibly – adult. It's so it, adult. It's a film about like the failing of adulthood, the failing of – dreams, the failing of being a failed a father who didn't do something that he should have done to save a child at some point. Yeah. Children are in constant peril, like really dark peril of death during this movie. Uh, I think this movie is a total masterpiece and a uh, cool connection. The director is the director of The Innocence that we were talking yes. about earlier, Jack Clayton. This is 85. Uh, Ray Bradbury adapting the screenplay for his own novel, which is super cool. But Jason Robards, who's just one of the great American actors, plays the father. Jonathan Price plays the uh, evil uh, Mr. Dark uh, who comes in with the carnival. Have um, you seen this boy or uh, this boy? No, that, that joke only works over Zoom. I know, yeah, so don't I work apologize. Um, but I had forgotten that Pam Greer was in it as the kind of mm-hmm. like, uh, but it's also, you know, it's um, the thing about a great classic movies like this, the difference between, oh, it's a slow burn versus it can take its time is every couple beats, something very intriguing happens. Like he, like somebody will look into a, into a shop and see like a, a woman's body kind of glowing and then look again and it's not there. And it's like, oh, okay, what's happening? And the town, this is a very quiet Americana town. This is a Buena Vista, so a Disney film. That's what's crazy about it. Um, and slowly uh, the the um, Robard's character is a librarian and his kid and his best friend are basically excited because they hear a carnival's coming to town and has this amazing shot of this train you know, with just in the darkness. And it's a very, I don't know, it's just totally intriguing, mysterious imagery leading into Talk it. about nightmare logic. Yeah. That's, this is pure nightmare logic. Yeah, and, um, but when they get there, it's actually scary. And there's parts where uh, basically they witness certain things that uh, some of the adults of the town are trading in their dreams at a very high cost with Mr. Dark. Um, and they witness a couple of these things and then they're basically being pursued by him in the town. And uh, it's, a you know, it's, they're constantly, it's a real kinder trauma movie but it's also Mm -hmm. a great movie like it also takes place on halloween literally there's a there's a night where they actually go trick-or-treating um and i just i can't recommend this one enough there's still no blu-ray of this which is just criminal um so you know you have to the dvd is as good as you can get right now but this one if you haven't seen it because you think maybe it's too much of a kids film this is probably very lucky to not be a pg-13 yeah it is Yeah. And I would say that had this been released later, it would have been a PG-13. The spiders fucked me up when I was a kid. There's this scene where um, the two boys are in bed and one of them says like, what, I think there's something in my bed. 
and he pulls back his sheet and the entire bed is full of tarantulas and they crawl on his face. Like they get all up in his grill. Um, and that scene, I remember just being particularly terrified. This is one that they showed in my school every Halloween. Mm, that's cool. So every Halloween in middle school, I probably first saw this in third grade. Mm. Um, they would bring this out and it was like the teacher doesn't want to teach today. And so they would show this movie. And I remember watching it in class probably three or four times. Um, and we would always request it. I remember by fifth grade that we'd be like, can we watch something wicked this way comes? It'd be like, you know, the class asking to watch the Grinch every Christmas. Um, I remember us as a class requesting this one. It was so good. Yeah, no, it's, it's a real class act. So hopefully, uh, Disney will, you know, wise up and know that. Cause like, this would be such a great thing to drop on their channel. You know, it, it's just, I know they're probably wanting to keep everything for younger, but between, I mean, the black cauldron's pretty dark too. So, oh, yeah. and, and they put that up for a while. So, uh, anyway, can't recommend this one enough. And that is my PG. I feel like there's a reboot that's been announced of this one that I'm missing. And, and people have been influenced by it. They've like, yeah, there might be, but they're also, uh, are you afraid of the dark ripped off some of the inner imagery, obviously of the, no, they announced a reboot coming in 2014 and it never appears to have formulated. I see them announcing it in 2014 that Disney is working on it. Um, I mean, Jonathan yeah. Price is an interesting actor. I didn't know he could play creepy like this. There's something, you know, he's in Brazil and he's in a lot of stuff, but and he's, we're used to him being old these days for the last 20 years. But in this, he's, he's very, you know, still very young. And it's a mm-hmm. very, like, you don't, I love movies that don't overly tell you enough about him to yep. work him out. You know, you still are, there's a lot of mystery about his, his kind of uh, what he is and why he is. And I love that in a, in a good horror. So. So my runner-up was Beetlejuice, um, which is PG, which I love. I haven't shown that one to my kids yet. I need to. Okay, onward to PG-13. We're never going to get out of here in under an hour, ever. I know. We're going to try every show. We're going to let our Halloween special go 90. (laughs) That's fine. Okay, so PG-13. I listed a whole bunch for this one, but I ended up deciding because it is, I'm going to go between two of them. Um, My main one that I would watch for Halloween, and this is definitely a me film, is Lady in White. Yeah, that's a good is one. PG yeah, I, I watched that last year for we were doing the best Halloween movies for screen drafts. And that one is really got some very dark stuff in it. Yeah, this is 1988 Frank Legia. Um, and it is just a young boy who gets locked into a school after hours and sees a ghost and starts kind of um, figuring ghost out murder. Uh, um, ghost murder yeah, yeah, yeah. like the full murder um, and then the ghost afterwards and starts kind of breaking down the crime that led to this and leading the the town um, to the killer. And it's really, it, it's weird. Cause this one, I always think of it as being so tense because it is a child chasing a murderer. But I always remember this as being so languid, like it's moving at a snail's pace, but mm. it's so bucolic and beautiful at the same time. Like it has so much ambience. Um, so though this is not one I would, I would watch with my kids um, because it is so kind of, um, it's paced like an A24 film. Well, and also um, because it's got like child murder. That's a good reason yeah. not to watch it with you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> child murder. Child what murder, else? You know. um, but yeah, so that one. And then I also put down um, the one I, I would probably watch with my kids in a couple of years is The Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark from last year. Okay. Um, which I... I remember after, I think I saw it with you. I did see it with you. Um, Yeah, we saw it together. And I remember afterwards being like, I don't know if that was for me. 
And now I look and go, no, that was not for me. It's my book from my childhood. Um, but that movie version was definitely not for me. But I think that by the time my kids get to be about 12, 10, 12, that will be for them. Yeah. And some horror sequences are great. And I think mm-hmm. the witch, I, not the witch, sorry, the scarecrow sequence is really yeah, good. Yeah. Harold. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good pick there. Uh, my PG 13 is technically unrated. I've got a couple like this, uh, but it would have been a PG 13. It was made for TV. That's why it's unrated. Um, but it definitely would hit there. It's basically like an hour and a half version of Thriller, the music video. I think this will become, uh, this was something I only saw this year and i it, it, i think it might be top three halloween set movies now for me and that is the midnight hour uh directed by jack bender oh, the french one right no, no no this is um the american tv abc made for abc oh it's a tv movie that uh probably just has never gotten a proper release it is on hd now on youtube so you're all very lucky because literally this will probably make your entire halloween if you haven't seen this one uh jack bender made a lot of tv movies a lot of fun thrillers and stuff so this is about a group of friends in a town like salem their high school friends uh and it's funny it's like lavar burden sherry belafonte peter de so they're all like uh, you know sherry belafonte and de are related to famous people dd pfeiffer uh so this is all 85 they are at a high school and uh one of them is related to like a guy in the history of the town who was like the witch you know uh slayer or whatever you know the person if it was salem it'd be the person who had the, did, you know did the trials or something like that um and they go to the local history uh place where the uh, it kind of, if you go to Salem, there's a place that does the witch trials and it has like animatronics acting it out. There's a place like that. They break in on Halloween uh, night and they find the scroll that apparently was what, you know, righted the town all these years ago from dark curses. And of course, they don't believe any of that. They grab the scroll, they grab the costumes, thinking, well, wear the costumes to the Halloween party. You dress as the witch, which was your great great grandmother, and I'll dress as the, th-. you know, of course, you can see where it's going. They go to a graveyard and read out the scroll, and then they go, whatevs, and go to a party. And then the dead rise. And it is. And ama- like literally, I, I avoided this one for years because I always thought it what is it says horror comedy, and so I just assumed it was like a goofy comedy that had a few horror elements. This is like crazy. It's got these amazing horror sequences. Tons of zombies and other creatures come back from the dead. But what's really cute is this one girl comes back from dead who doesn't look dead. She's just a cheerleader, but she's from the fifties. And she kind of has a love story with the one, the main guy. He has no idea she's from the 50s. And they kind of spend the night together, you know, throughout all the carnage that's happening. She's a lot more innocent-minded. It doesn't ever explain why she's not a rotting corpse. Um, and basically, as the night goes, massive carnage happens at this party. There's some really great i mean when i say like thriller the music video that's like literally you, if you want if you love the where thriller goes this is an entire feature film like that and um they just have to kind of try to restore the night before it hits uh it might be midnight to otherwise it's going to be stuck like this the town will, will stay like this uh kevin mccarthy from the original um invasion of the body snatchers is in there as, as a father there's some really cool cameos but this is like um a, a t- probably one of the best tv movies period because it never feels like one it feels like a big movie i have to guess there's a lot of pop- popular music played throughout it because they probably had the rights to do it for tv they probably mm-hmm. never cleared them for movies and therefore probably we will never see it clear for movies would be a guess which is a real shame because this is a total crowd pleaser um and kind of made my year what i saw because i was like oh now i've seen the perfect and i didn't realize all these years so if if you trust me jump into this one this halloween season on youtube the midnight hour nice okay so that takes us on to 
are. And at this point, we have a lot to pick from. Um, so I was going to go kind of classic with like trick or treat or trick or treat, um, both of which are my go-to Halloween movies. Um, but I decided that I wanted to find something that was not necessarily set on Halloween, but just kind of embodied what I think of of Halloween. And so I went with Night of the Demons from 1988. Wait, no, that is set on Halloween. It is set on yeah, Halloween. Going to a Halloween okay. party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're good. I remembered it as a birthday party. That's Halloween party because I did, it made my. I think it made the list last year. Made the Halloween. Okay, party. okay, okay. Oh, I, I, I thought about but this was going to very close to being mine too because. Well, there you go. I liked it a lot more than I did when I was young when I watched it last year again. So did I. This one, um, it, when I was a kid, this was not my favorite Demons movie. Like, I wanted Demons or Demons 2. Um, and this one, when I watched this last year, maybe it was for our Halloween draft. I could be I could be kind of like subconsciously, you know, putting a Halloween movie on the Halloween list and then questioning myself. Um, but yeah, I, I had so much fun with this when I had a rewatch with it. And it for me, I was just like, this is like the perfect Halloween night movie, just because it is so much fun party suddenly people start turning into demons they are classic demons which for some reason we don't have on screen anymore um which i miss like the demon um we just don't have that so i i just had a blast with this one i also put down the new evil dead um yeah not set up but gives you a feeling yeah that's when i it sometimes those are kind of ones you feel like watching it this season Mm -hmm. i see that yeah i'm due for a rewatch there i love that one um I kind of saw that one with you too. I remember you did, yeah. Yeah, did. it was like a mass press screening, and we had sushi beforehand because I was crazy pregnant and I couldn't eat. Yes, and they're worried yes. about you giving birth during the movie. They did during the. Uh, I remember walking in, and the the publicist was like, "Don't you dare give birth during this." Right. That would have been too too gory for that crowd. <laughs> yes. um, I went with one I hadn't seen. I, I love um, these Halloween films that uh, are like kids movies, but then something so fucked up happens that you're like, it's still basically a kids movie with a couple very violent insane parts and that is uh the stephen king adaptation silver bullet which i hadn't seen in like a long time and i'm telling you this movie it's it's totally i love it like it's one of those ones that i think gets has been maligned somewhat over the years watching it again this movie is so awesome because it starts with like wonder years voiceover which (laughs) totally gets you into the kid side of it right like oh it's like a kid's narrated thing and then there's gary Busey as the drunk uncle who comes and he's a little goofy and Corey haim so you and megan follows as the girl doing the voiceover from Anne of Green Gables, for Christ's sake. Um, and then Terry O'Quinn, the stepfather, is the sheriff of the town. Everett McGill's the preacher in the town. Um, what could go wrong? Um, this is based on Stephen King's Cycle of the Werewolf. Uh, and at some point, Coscarelli was meant to direct it, but uh, had failings with Dino De Laurentiis. But um, this is directed by a one-time director, Daniel Atias. But it, the violence in this is shocking. And there's a couple yes. death scenes that are really intense. And there is a dream scene that is might be one of the great dream scenes. It's a, I won't tell you which character is having it because I'll tell you who the killer is. But there is about, I think I read about 40 or 50 people who are all turning into werewolves in a sequence. And it is amazing and really kind of nightmarish. Um, it's very, so the horror is very adult, but the drama is, is like a kid's film in a good way, uh, like a kid's story, a realistic kid's story. And when the two collide, I just, I found it really, um, it was kind of like the best thing I could have possibly watched this Halloween. It really like, and, and it does have, it culminates. It's over a couple seasons, but it culminates on Halloween. 
Um, so there is a little, you get a little taste of Halloween night. Which I remember watching this as a kid and I loved this one. This is one that I watched way too long and um, Everett McGill like completely destroyed my brain because he's so creepy in it. Yeah. Um, and then I remember watching this as an adult and I was far more amused by Gary Busey in it because yeah, it really is like Busey at his Buseyest where it feels like he's making up his character as he goes along. Like I just remember like there's one scene. There's one scene where he comes in and he's like, I wear a hat now. And he has on this crazy hat. And the next one, he's like smoking a cigar. Like it changes. Well, they they, um, they say he drinks a lot so he could get away with a lot more. But yeah. he is good. And he's actually quite an emotional character. I believe him because he's the one, only one. He doesn't really believe the kids, but he's the only one who's willing to like even talk to them about yeah. what they think because they believe the killer is a certain person might be a werewolf. And they're, of course, no one in the town does. Um, but I guess this is also a, a Carlo Rimbaldi um, werewolf design that would werewolfism. Multiple. Yeah, there's multiple, and some are some are less consistent. But it doesn't matter. Like watching it this time, I was like, I don't care. There's a couple that I guess Dino De Laurentiis really hated it, and that's where the problem started. He hated the design, and there was a lot of issues. I guess Rob Bottin and Rick Baker also worked on it, mm-hmm. um, in in some way. But I, I think because I love the Howling too, and I love American Werewolf. But watching this one again, I think this one deserves a lot more love. I think oh, yeah. I think there's a Screen Factory disc now. I, I started on HD on Amazon. Amazon, but yeah, this was a great watch rewatch. I got to be honest, the killings. And if, you know, I was just talking about, um, snow hollow, the, uh, wolf of snow hollow. And I felt like, I felt like more of that was influencing snow hollow than those other films. So God, like, I want to see snow. Hollow. I, I really still, like it. I really, it's like still it. at the buy only. I always have to press through those I when think it's like, it just changed to the five ninety nine. Okay. Okay. I won't, I won't buy it. No, um, no. but I will pay 20, I will definitely pay five ninety nine to rent it. Um, Okay. So this has taken us to NC-17. And NC-17 is a hard one because honestly, when most films get an NC-17 rating, they will immediately start making cuts to get to an R. And then they might release their unrated version later, but they'll release it unrated because it's better to release it unrated than with the NC-17 attachment. Um, and so for this, it was it was a little difficult, but the one that I ended up going with, and I have a couple written down that I definitely want to talk about, but Evil Dead 1981 um, was X NC-17. Um, and this is one that, you know, it terrifies me. And this is one that if there was, and I don't go, I, I do retro screenings only if it's like a nitrate screening or something cool like that. Um, but if there was a screening of this movie on Halloween night, I would go. Um, and it would embody, you know, the scares of Halloween night for me. Yeah, it feels spooky. Yeah, this is why I love this film. It's it's when like two is more fun, but there's something about the first mm-hmm. one that's so ingenious and just and it's it's a horror with a you know hard horror to it. You know, yeah, it's, it's still spooky and creepy. It's kind of funny at times, but not in the way. Obviously, the second one's flat out comedy. So yeah, I think that's good. I mean, it's not set on Halloween, but it feels like Halloween. it doesn't have to be. It feels it for me. Yeah. Um, all the other ones that I wrote down were given an NC-17 rating and then cut, <clears throat> excuse me, to, they then cut to get to the point where they could release as R and then later released unrated versions of it. And that is American Psycho. Um, the 2006's The Hills Have Eyes. And this one is one of my faves. 1993's California. Yeah. Um, with a K. Can teach you to hunt. <laughs> that's the only line i remember that from that movie you're widowed now peaches um i remember that one yeah. and uh, 
what the hell kind of loony keeps a cactus in her purse? Um, yeah, that's yeah. a fun movie. I like that one. Yeah, I liked that movie. I was convinced so that would much. be a Halloween time movie. That feels more. No, like- but that was one that I was like, I want to see the NC seventeen rated version of. Oh, that. right. I bet um, it would have been more sex than anything. Maybe I'm thinking so because early definitely kind of gets all like rapey on her midway through. I can't uh, towards the end when they're in like the the Southwest um, yeah. nuclear testing site. Um, it's been a stretch since I've seen it. So I can't remember how far it goes. Um, but I remember that definitely being an element of it. Um, so yeah. And my last one, I cheated um, because I couldn't. Well, it's not really cheat. I, I don't know what it would have been rated, but I, you know, I wanted to keep all mine on Halloween for whatever reason, but I couldn't, you know, there wasn't any uh, NC-17s or Xs. Um, so I went with this new one. I just saw uh, Vinegar Syndrome just put this out like a week ago. Uh, this is Cemetery of Terror uh, by Ruben Galindo Jr. from 85. And me and you saw one of his earlier bonker movies, a little film called Don't Panic that we hosted a crazy screening of at UCLA archives back in the day. Uh, this yep. is a much different movie than that. That was like goofy and kind of a Freddy ripoff. This is like a straight eighties horror slasher type movie. Um, and what's cool is it is set on Halloween and it's Mexican. So it was cool to see some of the traditions are a little different. There one I really loved is all the kids who go trick or treating. They have carved out jack-o'-lanterns with the candles in it and are all carrying it as their lanterns. And it was so cool to see that as an actual thing. Like it didn't seem like they're doing it for a movie. It felt like that's just what we do here. And they're all walking around with these lanterns. I was like, and they're green. They tend to be green. Some of them were green pumpkins. Uh, anyway, so this one is a, it could basically be an American. What's the name of this one again? The Cemetery of Terror. Uh, two of his films, that and Grave Robbers, both just came out. I've, I've been wanting to see these for like a couple years, but you could only see bootlegs. And so I'm really excited Vinegar Syndrome put them out. Um, and this one, it's a bunch of teens uh, decide, there's two parallel stories. One is a group of kids who are going to go trick-or-treating. So that's one storyline. And then the teens decide their girlfriends uh, are kind of ignoring them. So they think, oh, well, we have to scare them so they get closer. So let's go steal a body from the morgue and then do something in the graveyard like to curse it or so, and read from this like cursed book. Um, so they, of it course- It feels like there's easier ways to scare your girlfriend. I, I don't know. I'm kind of with them. Um, at this point, you know, they get the morgue body. Uh, they read the spell. But unfortunately, they didn't realize that uh, the body they took was somebody who was already in league with Satan and had been promised that he would get to come back at some point if things are read from this book. Uh, Hugo Stiglitz, who is one of my favorite actors' names to ever say because Quentin Tarantino stole the name for Inglorious Bastards, a very famous character, Hugo Stiglitz. Uh, But Hugo Stiglitz, the actor that you love from Tintorera and I love from Night of a Thousand Cats and Nightmare City, he's one of those guys that just love seeing him pop up in a movie. He's like uh, the kind of um, professor who knows the whole story. He's like, no, that that body, we must get the body back. So he becomes the, if this is kind of a Halloween ripoff, we know kind of where it's headed. Um, But it gets gets some Friday 13th vibes with the kills as it starts to go and then it goes the last it's it's i would say it's an average movie the violence is pretty pretty interesting and stuff um but the last like 10 minutes almost feel like a fulci film like mm-hmm. the zombies start people start rising from the dead as these kids are in danger and the, it just looks different and feels different it has that feeling that eerie kind of creepy uh fulci vibe that for house of the house of the dead type vibe so i, I do recommend this one i thought it was fun um and you know it was on halloween so i was very excited it probably would have been an r i'm guessing if it was uh, actually through the ratings, but because it's unrated, I can cheat. Wow, so that's our Halloween so lineup. Awesome. That's our little Halloween lineups with, uh, with MPAA's, uh, you know, uh, history for you. That is awesome. Okay. MPAA histories. 
So let's close this out with our deep cut. Well, we got a deep cut, and then we're still doing a movie fight. We're gonna, we're going, we're gonna oh, go. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, we got movie fight yeah. too. We got, we hey, got lots. Halloween here. special. People haven't heard from us for a couple months. We're gonna take our time. Uh, next, next, next week's show will be 15 minutes, and we'll make up for no, it on the back No, it won't be. It's gonna be two uh, hours again. Long time. Uh, yeah, no, our deep cut will be brief. So we wanted for our deep cut and our movie fight, we wanted to uh, go with movies that are Halloween or Halloween. Halloween. Uh, this one definitely has a moment that is set on uh, Halloween or something like that. Uh, this is uh, the very crazy and kind of criminal that you can't see it easily still, Neon Maniacs. Neon Maniacs. So this is one that I had seen when I was a teenager, and I always had kind of fond memories of. And then I rewatched it this last weekend while canning um, pickles. Um, I put it on, yeah, I put it on in the kitchen and was like, well, I'm going to can pickles while I watch Neon Maniacs. And somehow that made perfect sense. Um, Neon Maniacs is just fucking bonkers. It, and I, I don't even really understand the plot. There is this um, shipping cargo that has these playing cards outside of it with these like deformed mutants on it. And somebody finds all these weird deformed mutant playing cards and then gets pulled in the shipping container. And then all these mutants come out and start killing people in the park. But whenever they do, they leave slime trails. And they're not just mutants, they're themed character types. I mean, I think the closest that somebody wrote about this, they're like, it's like a Hellraiser ripoff. They're like Cenobites almost, you know? I equated it to like, they're like the YMCA, they're like the village people. monsters, yeah. But like mutant village people where it's like, I'm the disco one, I'm the caveman one, I'm the Native American one. I'll give you their Um, names while we go because that will set the scene. We have one called, and then the trailer introduces all of them. How cool is that? All of them. Soldier, slasher, scavenger, samurai, punk, punk by Mohawk, Juice, I like Juice, Hangman, Doc, Decapitator, and Axe. I mean, it's kind of crazy that there's a movie with that level of monsterdom that no one's talking about anymore, really. Yes. I mean, some podcasts and some magazines, but your general public don't know that this is a movie they should be watching. And so a whole bunch of kids decide to go into like a park for some reason, and they're like hanging out and making out and smoking up and doing what kids do. And all these mutants show up and kill all of them, except for one girl who then goes to the sheriff and is like, there's crazy mutants who killed all my friends. And he's like, no, you're clearly insane. And they, they must have like. And they live yeah. under the San Francisco bridge is what they're saying. They're saying yeah. you're under the Golden Gate Bridge. And you're like, okay. Yeah, they live under the Golden Gate Bridge, which, um, and I have to say it was confusing because the whole thing was supposed to be set in San Francisco and there were definitely San Francisco scenes, but then chunks of it also took place in Hollywood at major Hollywood landmarks. And then additionally, half of the cast had Brooklyn accents, which I think was a directorial choice um, because every single time. Uh, that guy who, who, you could be right. The reason he was the DP of Alligator and Squirm uh, Joseph Mangine, he's not really a director. This is one of the only things he had directed. So, I noticed that all of the cops talk like they're from Brooklyn, and so everything became this very, and it was very kind of geographically confusing in that capacity. Uh, most um, where as soon as the, st- the cops started, they was like, there's no mutants out there, and it was like, I don't even know what's going on. But to make up for those accents, they make it a battle of the bands. And there's some there is a battle of the bands. And- there is, and let me say, the metal band totally killed. 
um, whatever that weird band was before the metal band, you know, one for days. Um, but then the punks, the, the mutants show up at the metal concert yeah. like you do. Um, and then nobody believed her, but now everybody has to believe her. And, and, and there's like, a, there's a great sequence in this movie that is, takes place on a train. I think that sequence is fantastic. Like it's really interesting, and exciting, and just, you could tell the budget is being spent, but this is also a movie <laughs> that gets cut to black very quickly. No, but this was my favorite scene of the train uh, was they kill the train conductor and then one of the mutants has to drive the oh, yeah. train. Yeah, I think and so true. while all the killing is going on, they keep cutting to Juice, who is yeah, just yeah. driving the train. There's nothing else going on. He's just driving he now. He's got a day job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's really into it, too. He looks excited about it. And, yeah, and he's like, I get to drive the train. Uh, the guy who plays Doc, uh, turns out it's Andrew Devoff, Wishmaster's first film. <laughs> so he's actually one of these monsters. Which is really crazy. Oh my god! Uh, but the thing that things I don't like, uh, the only way to get them is water. I mean, it felt totally lame way to kill these monsters. That was totally like a signs yeah. ending of all you have to do is throw water at them. And, and the movie ends so abruptly; it feels like there's like 20 minutes to still come, and it just cuts to black and fades to black. And you're like, and then you read up, and it's they ran out of money multiple times. Right. Yeah, there was a big, big issue. It doesn't really say. I haven't found much to say exactly what was happening behind the scenes, but the severe budget problem stopped filming like multiple times and they i know there was a suicide on this movie and i don't know I if it happened it. yeah during... i, I looked tried looking for if there was something bigger it wasn't the director so i know there was something related to this movie that i was like oh that's that got dark yeah there's not a lot of cast and crew talking about but but this is just one of those films that's a perfect pick for here because this to me would be a very fun, like let me put it this way if your work was going to do a Halloween party and you guys could pull off all taking a character of these monsters, you would win Halloween. They are such uh, it characters. was it was the screenwriter, but he didn't um, commit suicide until 10 years later. Oh, okay. So that's, well, that's not affiliated with the actual production. Yeah, again, it didn't get much of a release, obviously, because yeah. of how, how it all went for it. So it's a shame. But I do think there, this film deserves a second life. I'm sure it just seems ripe. It's bonkers. Yeah. If you're looking for an 80s, completely bonkers, gory movie that you have not seen before, Neon Maniacs. Yeah, Go Neon there. Man. Definitely look for it. Um, and uh, we're going to, you know, we got some good positive feedback of wanting more movie fights. So uh, even though uh, movies are in high art form, one of these movies will die. And I think today it's really about which movie would be uh, should be played for Halloween's from now on. Neither of them yes. are set on Halloween, but both of them feel like they are set on Halloween. Yes. Both are self-reflexive postmodern horror films. Both were box office duds, and they both, both have a lot of movie theater stuff. Both are celebrating horror fandom, fandom as yeah. well. Yes, and they are both, both very kind of meta, where they are about the horror fan. And we are so with two movies which are both about, in a sense, specters haunting movie theaters. Mm-hmm. We are de- this is pro- this is a real hard one. I've got to say personally, com- even compared to last week, we are looking at uh, just finally recently available, very hard to see for a long time, Fade to Black uh, from 1980, directed by Vernon Zimmerman, f- featuring uh, what is a very famous performance by Dennis Christopher as Eric. Binford, the crazy uh, fan of uh, horror who goes nuts, or um, the production history problematic uh, but very entertaining popcorn, um, which, like, if you read up about that one, you can't tell who freaking made it because there's just so, no. many, so many fingers. I have no idea. I know Alan Ormsby, who wrote, uh, who's the star of Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, he definitely wrote it, but he has a pseudonym name on it. 
the actor from Porky's ended up directing it after Ormsby left. After uh, there was a whole different actress who shot for like three weeks, then they refilmed all her parts with Jill Sholin. Me and you are huge Jill Sholin fans. Uh, definitely, definitely one of the best actresses from that time period. Uh, but uh, when me and Mike Williamson hosted a screening of this, there was some strong. Uh, nods being made about maybe that Bob Clark might have actually directed it because he is a producer. I heard that and as she well. Was kind of that implying. Bob Clark had a heavy hand, and when Jill Sholin talked about yeah. it, I was at that screening. She definitely implied that definitely Bob present. Clark he was there was very present in many of the scenes. Either way, we love Bob Clark. So, so these two yeah. movies uh, both have you know very di- totally different styles. That's the interesting thing. They couldn't be more different for two films with that much in common. They couldn't be tonally more different. Um, okay, so let's kick it off with Fade to Black. Fade to Black for me was a hidden gem um, where I didn't discover this one until I was very, you know, I was probably in my 30s, like early 30s when I saw this. It's been like within the last decade. Um, and it was it was a, a very treasured viewing because of that, because it was a gem. Um, I love this one because it does have we're in the hands of a serial killer. We're in the hands of an unreliable narrator. It is a slasher. But we are with the slasher as he dresses up as all of these different movie characters and takes down the society that ridicules him for his love of movies and tells him he's weird. And so there is- could go a different way too, because the first part he's he is a movie nut and he's uh, he's bullied and he's teased and he's totally obsessed. He's half the time he's talking in the voice of James Cagney, but he has this date with this Marilyn Monroe lookalike who he discovers and she's really kind of nice to him and he goes out to meet her on the corner she sets up the date and then she gets distracted by this kind of asshole character and fails to get there on time and that's what kind of turns him you know obviously well that and something with his aunt um but it's got kind of a little bit of a whatever happened to baby jane-ish quality to their Mm -hmm. living situation uh yeah so this is finally available on shutter so i did rewatch it having not seen it for a very long time. Um, and it's a very, it's, it reminds me of Marden in a lot of ways um, in that way where it is kind of that, do you trust the narrator? Uh, you're watching a troubled character. It's a sad movie. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's really well made. It's a great character piece. Um, and uh, Tim Thomerson is also there as a slutty cop, which is really funny. And Mickey yeah. Rourke, Mickey Rourke, very young. Uh, Mickey Rourke is the bully who's built bullying the Dennis Christopher character, but it, it is a real iconic horror character. Like it's a character. You'll never forget this character uh, just yep. from the costumes, the, the roles he plays um, and, and the attention to film culture detail. They really get it all right. They use a lot of real film posters. Uh, there's a thing in a, in a storage facility where the, all the prints are. So I feel like it really gets the authentic film love. Yes. And, and yeah, this definitely gets kind of fan culture before fan culture was even really identified as a thing. Yeah. Um, so much love for fade to black, but popcorn popcorn's just a hoot. Popcorn is about a group of students who are trying to raise money for their film club. So they decide to hold a movie marathon of horror films yeah. and they decide to do it in old, Um, you know, kind of William Castle style where they've got um, all of these different props and things that are going along with it. While all this is happening, um, Jill Sholin's character is having flashbacks to this killer affiliated with this film, Possessor. Yeah, yeah, which is also exciting because that should be a double feature right now. Popcorn and Possessor should be played together and we'd be like, oh, nice. But yeah, she's she's having flashbacks of something she's never seen or or experienced. She's seeing these images and this man and her dreams and she's recording it because she wants to make a badass horror movie. So she's 
you know, trying to like jot it all down. And her mom played by D Wallace. Every time her daughter talks, she's like, uh, yeah, let's not do that. And you don't know why. And then one day they find this little canister of a 20 minute film while they're about to put on this movie marathon, they string it up and they realize it's the images and the voice from her dreams. And it turns out it was run by a cult, a cult leader in the sixties who had, or seventies who had, you know, had all these followers and he had ended up culminating by playing his movie on stage and trying to murder his family. Uh, that's yep. kind of, she finds out all this and does still doesn't know if there's any connection to her. And then they put on their film festival and then people start being killed in very imaginative, insane ways. The character is able to take on the face of the person and their yeah. identity. It's, it's just got all these bonkers like gadgets and um, just some really playful ideas at work. But it is so fun at the same time. There is just so that something so in gen, just genuine about this movie. Like it just celebrates movie love and horror love and it does it in such a fun manner. Um, and really, even though that it's an eighties film, it has this just vast love for films of the 1960s and fifties, kind of the cheesy horror comedies um, shot entirely in Jamaica. And um, so I, I couldn't it. tell until the band came on. <laughs> and then, um, and that's the, when they sing um, Saturday night at eight o'clock. Yeah. It's such, there is yeah. so many good, like all of the, they bring in all of this Caribbean music. Well, it's gotta it. be a good story to why they shot this in Jamaica, but it's got this amazing movie theater. So it totally works. And you wouldn't even be able to tell from the audience who are watching the movie. It's kind of, but yeah, so it's shot in Jamaica. Um, and uh, one little factoid that definitely I thought was super cool is they apparently based that character, the villain, Leonard Gates, who had the cult on uh, Jose Moica Marins. So it was oh, like, really? yeah, Coffin Joe apparently was kind of the inspiration for making this film. Called, and when I read that, I was like, that's actually pretty cool. Um, wow. They clearly, they clearly know this world. Yeah. Each one of those little movies within, there's three movies within the movie that are cheesy and they were all shot by Ormsby. That was done before the rest. So, uh, so yeah, these are totally different plays on very similar ideas. And I got to say, I don't think I could even choose between these if it was just a normal, because they're so different, but but which one should become a go-to Halloween staple? Which one? I got to vote for popcorn Um, because popcorn for me exemplifies the Halloween horror movie screening, the joy of celebrating horror movies with an audience and with each other. And even though I love fade to black, Fade to Black is all about suffering through fandom by yourself and it being a curse that you're forced to deal with because you are such a huge fan. And isolating and that yeah. And isolating it. And that, for me, is not Halloween. Halloween is uh, it's it's let your freak flag fly. It is when everybody in the world comes together to celebrate horror in mass. And so, for me, the best Halloween movie between these two is clearly Popcorn. One of these films has um, reggae, and that film, <laughs> there was no choice at that point. Yeah, no, look, I had to watch. I, I thought this was going to be hard because my rewatch of Fade to Black is like, I think this is a great movie, but I think Popcorn is such a fun movie and, and a film that I often heard people not talk so well of. And then they'll watch it again. I'm like, you guys are crazy. This movie has it's so much so fun. fun. Yeah, and just, and a really great, I, like, shout out to the, the guy who plays the actual you know, maniac in this movie, he gives an incredible performance. I, I just, I just realized I didn't write his name down. Uh, he gives a really incredible performance. It's playful. It's fun. And we're always looking for like, what is that icon like Freddy? And I think this, this character could have been one of those icons, one of those uh, regular Halloween. Sadly, he got mm-hmm. HIV right as, as 
Aww. started and and he you know he still made a few more films afterwards but he but he, you know uh it's, he definitely died pretty young um tragic. but the but the performance is just so full it's like it feels like a jeffrey combs type performance it does um, and it's so much fun so we are I, i'm still a little shook that we are have agreed to 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 two shows in a row of yes. popcorn lives uh even though popcorn lives you all can get to see fade to black luckily because it's uh uh you know on shutter but even though it's dead it's on shutter it's on Shutter, and Popcorn has a beautiful Blu-ray, which um, is sadly I'm looking at it now. It is listed as out of stock, but you can buy it used for thirty bucks, and it kind it's well worth that. It's worth it, and I love that you brought. I think a perfect note to end the show on. This was our Halloween show. We wanted to make sure we did something special because it's you know you guys will get to hear this before right on Halloween, and it's a different Halloween. But that idea of bringing people together, um, a big part of why we did the show in the first place to to keep doing something that we like coming together to talk about horror and. We we also love to share it and we love hearing from you guys telling us that you're connecting to it. Um, so please do tell us after you hear the episode uh, and, you know, let Fango know and, you know, rate and review the show, find us on the socials and just try to, you know, try to keep this conversation going. Yes. Thank you guys so much. Have a fantastic Halloween. We will see you in two weeks on the other side of the election. Happy Halloween and vote. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Fright Rags. Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Collections include John Carpenter's Halloween, Universal Monsters, Night of the Living Dead, Creepshow, Twin Peaks, Evil Dead, Ghostbusters, and so many more. All officially licensed and only available at www.fright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off their first order using Colors of Dark 10. Again, that's Colors of Dark 10 for 10% off your first order at www.fright-rags.com. Visit severin-films.com for the latest cheerfully perverse releases from Severin Films. Available now, Luigi Cozy's The Black Cat, a.k.a. Demon 6, the unofficial third mother installment from longtime Dario Argento collaborator and the director of Contamination. Uh, Cozy's 1989 loose spin on the classic Poe tale stars Carolyn Monroe and dollops of uniquely Italian splatter never before on home video in America with the new 2K scan and interviews with Cozy and Monroe. Uh, speaking of unofficial sequels, absolutely no one involved with the original would approve of the super gore and sleaze quotient of Patrick Still Lives from the producers of Burial Ground. Oh boy. This one has to be seen to be believed and arguably features the most outrageous death scene in all of Italian horror cinema. That is a bold horror statement. And we know that's very bold. Okay, well, I, I rewrote their entire script because I was so blown away by that statement. We dare you to see Patrick Still Lives now with 2K scan from the original negative. A sexy slipcase edition available only from our web store. Also out this month, Alain Delon in Shock Treatment, the first official disc release of the notorious 70s French chiller. New 2K scan from the Interpositive in Paris, packed with special features and exclusive to the Severance store. Slip case and soundtrack cd edition follow Severn films on social media their black friday exclusive announcements will be dropping very soon and visit severin-films.com for all available blu-rays and dvds and merch
And last but certainly not least, tonight's episode is brought to you by Final Girl Wines. Final Girl Wines is a boutique mom and pop wine label any horror lover can be proud to share. Whether it's a quiet movie night on your couch or a Halloween gift for a friend, there's a Final Girl wine for every palate and every occasion. Their wines have scored 90 points and above in Wine Enthusiast magazine at prices that won't break the bank. Join the four-bottle wine club by Halloween and get four bottles for just $88. Member benefits include 10% off of all future purchases, and you can cancel at any time. Go to finalgirlwines.com to get your wine today.